Good morning, everyone. So I do have um, a few notes this morning, and with fans flying, and you never know what uh, what's going to happen here. So the notes may go flying as well. So uh, in fact, I was halfway at church this morning, and I realized I left my notes at home, and so I did have to go back for them. Uh, but um, but before we get into the message this morning. I just wanted to uh, uh, I just wanted to answer a, a question or, or so about this contraption on my arm because uh, a number of people have been asking me about it. You know here at Revolve we, um, we really get into the latest technological advances. Um, this is a, a bionic the latest in bionic armory. Um, I, I think it's the latest thing, honestly. I think pretty soon every preacher will have at least one. Um, it's really quite remarkable. And I could share just by way of warning that it, it allows me in the event that people might fall asleep or might become enamored with this beautiful, beautiful scenery, it, it enables me to sort of to stretch out and and to uh, lovingly exhort that, uh, that person. So I share that with you by, by way of uh, warning this morning. And actually, that's a segue to, uh, to, to the morning text. We are back in First Thessalonians. Um, Bill stepped aside from this book for the last two weeks. We had some uh, special services. Uh, but the, we are getting back to First Thessalonians. And uh, just for the sake of um, review and, and memory, First uh, Thessalonians was a book that, uh, that Paul wrote after Timothy returned to Thessalonica after they were chased out of the city. They were in the city actually for uh, a relatively short period. In Acts chapter 17, we're told that uh, Paul spent three Sabbaths um, presenting the case for Jesus from the Old Testament uh, to the Jews. And um, some believe, but the Word of God also indicates that they were literally chased out of the city. And so once reaching Athens, uh, Paul became concerned about how they were doing, sent Timothy. Timothy came back, made a presentation to Paul concerning their current status, and then Paul wrote this book of First. Thessalonians. It was a letter to the Thessalonian church. And I find it interesting by way of the warning that I referred to in the introduction uh, this morning, just a few moments ago. I find it interesting that Paul was in uh, Thessalonica for such a short period of time, and yet he found it significantly important as a part of the gospel presentation to present the idea of coming judgment. And that's something that um, you don't hear a lot of anymore. Uh, preachers tend to want to give us words of comfort, and that's certainly a part of the gospel. Uh, but uh, in, in balance, um, the part of the gospel presentation that Paul presented, because he was a faithful preacher, uh, was a presentation of warning. You may recall back in Acts chapter 24 when Paul stood before the Roman governor Felix 
he was uh, presenting the case for Jesus to the governor. And the scripture says that there were three characteristic marks that presented that that characterized Paul's presentation. One was righteousness, the other was self-control, and the third was coming judgment. And Felix, it says, became alarmed. He became frightened and sent Paul away to another time. So even with this short period of time, the presentation of the gospel uh, included a, a warning for those who ignore the provision of the forgiveness of sins that Christ and Christ alone uh, offers through faith. So since it's been a few weeks, let's go back to chapter 4 and uh, just kind of summarize so that we can get a running start into our text this morning. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll seek to cover chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So back in chapter 4, in verses 1 to 8, Paul encouraged them to walk in purity. He reminded them, this is God's will for you. Ever ask yourself that question? What is God's will for my life? Uh, Paul presents it very clearly in chapter 4. He said, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, walking in holiness. And so in verses uh, 1 to 8, he encourages them to walk in purity. And then in verses 9 to 12, he encourages them to walk in brotherly love. Serve one another. Uh, be kind to one another in your dealings. Uh, this is the kind of thing that distinguishes the, the believer from the unbeliever in that brotherly love that we have one for another. And then we get into chapter 4, verses 13, until we uh, reach chapter 5 and verse 11. In that entire section, Paul encourages them to walk in hope. Believers have a hope. Uh, Paul, to the Thessalonians, to the, uh, his letter to Titus, refers to it as a blessed hope. The word blessed is a word which means joyful or happy. It is a hope that makes us joyful. It is a hope that makes us certain. Sometimes we use the word hope in sort of a wishy-washy kind of a way. You know, our, we hope our team wins. We hope we get that job and that promotion. But the Apostle Paul uses the word hope uh, in quite a different way. It has to do with a, an assurance, a certainty. And he says believers can walk in hope. And the hope is based on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Now, in chapter 4, you, you may remember that the, Pastor Bill reminded us that this was a word of comfort and encouragement for believers. The Thessalonians had some questions about those in their fellowship that had already died. And their question was, uh, did, will they miss the coming return of Jesus? Uh, has God abandoned them? And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in answering that question, no. He said there will be resurrection. There will be reunion. If you remember in chapter 4, Paul said that the dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus comes in the air 
for his church, that snatching away of the church to meet him in the air? The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive will be gathered up together with them, and we will be, and I love this, forever with the Lord. Think about that. Forever with the Lord. Those few words should give us a great sense of, of uh, comfort and encouragement, no matter what we're going through. And that's what Paul said. He said, therefore, encourage and comfort one another with these words. Now, we come to chapter 5, and we um, really come to a different section. Um, it begins with uh, Paul saying, now concerning. Now, that was a, a phrase that Paul often used when leaving one subject and moving on to another. It was a transitional statement. And we'll notice in chapter 5, in verses 1 to 11, that the Apostle Paul presents a series of five contrasts. And if you go back to chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, the contrast there was between living believers and those believers that had died, but believers nonetheless. Now Paul in chapter 5 addresses those that will remain after Jesus comes for his church. In other words, how will the coming of the Lord impact the non-Christian world? And that's an interesting study. And we get into that uh, this morning with uh, five different uh, contrasts. Now notice, as we read these verses, the contrast that Paul makes between um, us and them, between you and them. Uh, there's uh, quite a distinction between believers and unbelievers. In fact, Paul refers to them back in chapter 4 and verse 12 as outsiders. Uh, and he indicates that there are five uh, contrasts between believers and unbelievers. Let me share them with you. And then the game plan is, after going through these five contrasts, we're going to go back and focus on verses 1 to 3 for the remaining moments that we have. So, contrast number one we see in uh, verses one to, uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 5. It's a contrast between knowledge and ignorance. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They were fully aware. The Greek indicates literally that they had accurate knowledge. That's what it means. They were fully aware that the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night. Obviously, Paul, as a part of that month or so that he spent in this city, a part of his teaching, a part of the gospel presentation, included a message related to these kinds of things prophetic issues, the returning of the Lord and the coming judgment that will come when Christ comes to earth. And then verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, 
then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, as I'm reading these verses, again, listen to the we versus they, or the you versus they. There's clearly a distinction uh, between believers and unbelievers. And again, the contrast back in the previous section was between living believers and dead believers. Here, the contrast is between believers and unbelievers. So we read first, uh, knowledge and ignorance. The crowd on the outside uh, doesn't know what God is doing. Uh, you ever notice the way God reveals to the people of God uh, information related to the future? Now, we don't have it all. In fact, some have uh, speculated and have uh, determined certain times and dates and go way beyond what we should do in terms of speculation. Uh, we don't know the exact hour of Christ's return, but we are to be living in a state of readiness. So if anyone ever gives you the, the time or the date, um, don't take that in. Uh, Jesus himself said, the angels do not know the exact time, only the Father. But there is much that God does reveal to us. You know, the Egyptians didn't know what was going on. But Moses knew because God revealed it. The psalmist wrote, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. You know, the civil rulers in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles did not know what was going on. But the prophets knew. And so people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and others spoke about future events. Uh, God has revealed certain bits of information to his people. That's why, by the way, he gives us uh, his Bible. Uh, because we would not know who God was uh, by intuition or by science, but only by revelation, the fact that we have received a message from God. Jesus himself, if you remember, in John chapter 15, distinguishes his followers as not servants, but friends. He said, I call you friends. And how did Jesus distinguish servants from friends? Well, he said, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. He said, but I call you friends because I have revealed to you what my father has made known to me. So believers know some things. Now, we don't know everything. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 reminds us that the secret things belong to God. I remember one of the questions one of the seminary students asked the professor. The professor said, My brother, we have to wait for glory before we get to that answer. He said, You're trying to unscrew the inscrutable. Uh, there are certain things that are the secret things that belong to God. And thank God for that, that He doesn't reveal them. Sometimes I have difficult enough time with the things that He has revealed uh, to us. Uh, those things belong to God, but. Uh, Moses wrote, but those things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we see first the difference between knowledge and ignorance in this passage. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, 
we see the contrast of light and darkness. But you are not in darkness. Notice you. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not in the night or of the darkness. So there's knowledge versus ignorance. There is light versus darkness. And then thirdly, there's the difference and contrast in watching and sleeping. Look in verse 6. So then let us not sleep, now note, as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. So there is that sense of watchfulness, being alert, and being sleepy. Now next, Paul, uh, sort of launching onto that idea of sobriety, in verses 7 and 8, makes the contrast between soberness and drunkenness. In uh, verses 7 and 8, for those who are asleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the uh, helmet, the hope of salvation. And then lastly, the last contrast is found in verses 9 and 10, and basically it's the consequence of all this. We see the consequence of salvation versus wrath. And we see in verse 9, 10, and 11, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And then once again, he ends this portion as he does in chapter 4, when he says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. He's saying you're doing it, but keep on doing it. Keep on building up one another. Keep on encouraging one another. Now, with that uh, sort of an over, well, overview, let's um, spend uh, the final moments that we have uh, going back to the first uh, portion of this uh, section, verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning times and seasons. So, Paul gives us this uh, uh, future picture in terms of times and seasons. Now, the word times... Uh, is the word chronos in Greek. It's from where we get our English word chronology. It has to do with calendar time. It has to do with linear time. So Paul says as relates to times and seasons. Seasons has to do with events that take place uh, during that time. He says, um, brothers, you have no need of anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I'd like to focus now on that the phrase, the day of the Lord. This was a prominent uh, phrase in the uh, Old Testament. In fact, the day of the Lord is found 18 times, listed by eight different prophets in the Old Testament. It was a definite a prominent Old Testament theme, the day of the Lord. Now, I mentioned that it was listed 18 times. Actually, it's listed 
many more times than that, uh, but listed under a different uh, name or designation. Sometimes it's referred to as the day of wrath. Sometimes it's the day of judgment. Uh, sometimes it is the day of trouble. At times it's just listed as that day. And when you look at all those synonymous expressions, nearly a hundred times there is a reference in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. Now the idea of times and seasons indicates that this is not referencing a 24-hour day, but rather a period of time. Right now, we are living in the day of man. And we've fouled things up pretty much, haven't we? Uh, if you're not convinced of that, all you need to do is look at the, the daily headlines and you will see new and the very unexciting ways that, uh, that we are fouling things up during our day. But upon another day, there will be the day of the Lord. And I like the definition that the one New Testament scholar gives, uh, Edmund Hebert, indicates the day of the Lord is that period of time where God intervenes in human history to do three things. To judge his enemies, to deliver his people, and to usher in his kingdom. Let me repeat that. The day of the Lord is the period of time when God enters into human history to do three things. To judge his enemies, to deliver his people, and to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I indicated, it is a prominent theme in the Old Testament, but uh, perhaps it is most prominently presented by the Old Testament prophet Joel. So I'm going to uh, go back to the prophet Joel and just share a few thoughts uh, that Joel presents for us concerning the day of the Lord. In chapter 1, and the first part of chapter 2, Joel presents the day of the Lord as a period of great devastation. And he uses an analogy or a picture. And the picture that he uses is a great plague of locusts. And the locusts will come, he says, and will devastate the land. As a result of the locusts, there will be drought, there will be fires, there will be no food for people or for animals. The vines will dry up, Joel indicates. Um, there, there will be a great sense of repentance. The, the people will lament and repent because of the lack of food. And so Joel presents a picture of the day of the Lord and he uses this agricultural uh, analogy of a great locust plague. Then in the middle of chapter 2, he leaves the picture of the locust plague and says that the, this will dovetail into a military uh, analogy, and that is the coming judgment of the people and the destruction of the land, and that they will be taken into exile. Uh, Joel refers to the kingdom of the north, the great Babylonian empire that will enter the land because of the nation's sin, because of their lack of repentance. And this is a historic application 
of the day of the Lord. Now, you will study, if you're a student of prophecy, you will, you will notice that many times prophetic events are fulfilled at a certain time in history, actually fulfilled, but they also refer to a future, what theologians refer to as an eschatological fulfillment. Eschatology is the Greek word for last things or final things. So the study of final things is what the theologians call eschatology. So there seems to be a historical fulfillment, but there's also an eschatological fulfillment. And basically what happens, uh, Joel indicates, uh, to the people, to the land, by way of the locust plagues, by way of the Babylonian captivity, Joel says is basically a preview. In other words, uh, basically Joel could have said these things that happened, but you ain't seen nothing yet. There is going to be a future cataclysmic uh, judgment upon the world. And uh, we, we see this where Joel begins to give more detail in the end of chapter 2. And let me uh, give you some characteristics of what will take place prior to, and Joel, this is very important as we seek to understand the big picture, this, these things will take place prior to the day of the Lord. Now, how do we know that? Because Joel tells us. It's always helpful when we get a, a divine interpretation of the text. Joel says, let's look at some of the characteristics that will take place prior to the day of the Lord. And we see this in verse 28. Now, in verse 28, chapter 2, uh, Joel says, And it shall come to pass afterward. And what is the afterward referred to? Afterward refers to the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so here's one of the things that Joel says will take place. First, the Spirit of God is going to do remarkable things. The Spirit of God is going to do remarkable things. And so what do we read? Well, let's see some of the things, some of the things that uh, Joel indicates. He says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. On all flesh, not just on Jews, but now on Gentiles. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, not just men, but now women will be prophesying. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. So it's not just the ministry of the older men, the elders, but now the younger men. Uh, and so these are some of the amazing, remarkable works that the Spirit of God uh, will demonstrate toward, uh, prior to the day of the Lord. Uh, secondly, we see Joel in verse 30 and 31 tells us that God will reveal some remarkable signs. Uh, let me just look at these verses with you. The sun shall be turned to darkness the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Notice Joel says, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So first he said there's going to be miraculous 
uh, ministries, demonstrations of the work of the Spirit. Secondly, he says there's going to be signs in the heavens. Now, jo now Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, references Joel's sermon. Now, interestingly enough, some people say, well, the day of the Lord was fulfilled in Pentecost. But Peter doesn't say that. Peter rather says, this is that which Joel was speaking of. In other words, the speaking in languages known by the people who were in the city, who were foreigners to that dialect, they understood the gospel presentation that Peter was making in their own language. This was one of the remarkable works of the Spirit, and that's, by the way, what the word tongues mean. Literally, in the Greek language, it means the gift of languages. And so that was an evidence, Peter says, of the kind of thing that Joel was referring to. So we see remarkable uh, evidences of the work of the Spirit. We see um, uh, remarkable signs in the heavens that did not happen in the day of Pentecost. And we see that it will end in salvation. We see this in Joel chapter 2 and uh, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And once you get into chapter 3, then Joel will present some of the characteristics after the day of the Lord that will usher in the kingdom of God. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Uh, it's a day of rescue, and it is a day that will usher in the kingdom of heaven. I believe that the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 20, indicates uh, some of the specifics that will go on during this period called the day of the Lord. Now, why did Paul spend this time clearing up this, uh, this matter of the day of the Lord? Well, for good reason, because the Thessalonians were a bit confused. We, we see this in, in chapter 2 of uh, Second Thessalonians, uh, the Thessalonians, because of the persecution that they were enduring, thought that they were already in the day of the Lord. And Paul says, no, certain things will happen first before the day of the Lord begins. In chapter 2, we read, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Now that gathered together with him indicates, I believe, the, uh, the, the dissension of the Lord where we as his people will meet him in the air and will be caught up is the way it's translated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, the Latin word for caught up is rapture, which is the word that seemingly has uh, stuck in our vocabulary concerning this theme. And I believe that Paul was saying here, uh, now some of you are, are thinking that the day of the Lord has already taken place. But in fact, he says some things will happen first. And one of those uh, first on the list, I believe, is the, the coming and the gathering up of the church 
God's people to meet Jesus in the air, which is a different event from the second coming where Christ will come to earth uh, with his angels delivering judgment uh, upon those who do not believe. Now Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 in trying to clarify this confusion says, um, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay, he's saying there's some people that are standing up in the congregation saying that they have a word from the spirit. Uh, there are some who even forged the letter saying that it came from Paul indicating that because of this persecution, we're already in that day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Paul says that that's not the case. The fact is that uh, we are not first gathered up. That will happen first, but other things will happen as well before the great and terrible day of the Lord. For example, uh, the rebelliousness will come first over the earth. The Greek word is apostilia, uh, the apostasy. I believe that there will be a great worldwide apostasy uh, from the orthodox teaching of the word of God. It will be centered in the church, but it will be the remaining church, not the true church. That will, church will already be caught up with Jesus in the air. Uh, but the, the mainline denominations that don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Uh, I believe there will be a great apostasy. That's what Paul says will take place first. He also says that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. We know more about this uh, man of lawlessness from the book of Revelation. Uh, he is called here the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he will take his seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. So Paul says, don't think that you're in the day of the Lord at this point. Uh, that is uh, not the case. So let's, uh, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, we'll, we'll finish up very, very quickly. Um, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then some destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day will not surprise you because we have the knowledge. We don't know exact details, but we have enough to know so that we should be living in a state of readiness and preparation. We should live today. We should live every day in light of the fact that Jesus can return at any time. We should use our time wisely. We should encourage one another as we go through difficult times here with these beautiful words. The day of the Lord is a certain event, but Paul also says the day of the Lord is a secret event. It will come like a thief in the night. And then it lastly is a sudden event. It will come upon us like birth pangs. And while people are saying peace and safety, living life as they normally do, suddenly God, Jesus will return and there will be judgment and there will be 
rescue of his people, those who believe after the church is removed during that tribulation period, there will be those who do believe they will be rescued by Jesus then when he returns, and then he will usher in his kingdom. Now, this was um, a brief summary of this passage. Um, it's a subject matter that requires uh, really a comprehensive understanding of the word of God because so many of the prophets deal with this subject. Uh, Jesus presents this uh, in Matthew 24 and 25. Paul addresses the theme of the rapture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have uh, interest in this, if you'd like to learn more, we would encourage you to come on Tuesdays. We're doing a book study on doctrine. We are covering different uh, segments of different biblical beliefs is what we hold to. And one of those uh, sections deals with the study of eschatology. And we'll have a little bit more time to interact and, and uh, answer questions and uh, do a little bit more with the subject. So we would, again, invite you to uh, take a part, uh, take advantage of that opportunity. The main thing is for us to realize that we are not to be fearful, but we are to be comforted. We are to be encouraged, and we are to live in a state of readiness, and we are also to be ready to share the message of hope uh, to people around us. I think sometimes we present the gospel, we may say, come to Jesus for peace, come to Jesus for purpose, he will give you those things, and he does. But I think we should also include the fact that we would encourage people to come to Jesus so that he could rescue us and deliver us from the uh, coming judgment and enable us to be called sons and daughters of the living God. Because God has not uh, destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And so let's, uh, let's praise him together uh, for who we are, that we belong to him.